Hello and welcome to the I Am Still Learning podcast, brought to you by CRED. My name is Ronan McDonald. I'm the founder and CEO of CRED. At CRED, we're asking the following questions. What if you could create three new habits? The habit of learning, the habit of mental health and well-being, and the habit of giving. What then if you could look back at the end of your life and see the legacy and the impact you created? Our purpose is to enable today's actions to impact tomorrow's world. To learn more, please visit our website, cred.global. But I am the luckiest man walking on the planet, or I certainly feel like it. My guest on today's episode is Matt Beckett. For context, my children go to the same school as Matt's. Over the last number of years, I've been lucky enough to get to know him, his wonderful wife Vanessa, and their gorgeous family. We've also shared a few laughs over the last number of years. However, everything changed for Matt and his family on Sunday the 24th of March this year. I promise, this is a story worth listening to. Matt, I'd like to invite my guest to bring us somewhere in the world that's special for them to have this conversation. Where in the world are we going for this conversation today? Um, good question. I, uh, I think we're going to go to uh, Coulston Court Golf Club and we're just on the first tee and we're about to start 18 holes and it's a, an early spring morning. Um, uh, there's no one else on the course. We're the first out and we're about to hit off on the, on the first tee. And I think Colston Court Golf Courses because that's very close to where I was brought up and I spent a lot of time with friends going around that golf course, having a few hits. Um, and it's a good place to have a chat. Just wandering around a golf course, just having a hit, no, nothing too stressful, just having a chat on our way around. So, yeah, that's where I'd like to go for uh, for this chat. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to give you the honour. So you've got the honour on the first tee, Matt, and uh, tell me what club you take out to hit the first ball. Oh. Silly question. I'll obviously, take the driver. <laughs> Not a three. I wouldn't take the three iron out. No, I'll take the driver and I'll ping one straight down the centre, put the pressure all the way back on you. Well, I'm not a wood player, so I'll be taking out the three, <laughs> the three iron. And my friends that know me know I'm pretty shaky off the first tee. Okay. So I I don't, I can't guarantee that I'll be bisecting in the middle of the fairway. So um, I, I, I lay up just a, a couple of feet behind you, and it's just a Pig of sweet three iron down the middle of the centre, but don't quite reach your driver distance. I got my wood out and you didn't. That's all I hear. And uh, can you tell me about some good chats you've had on golf courses? Have you like what are what are your best chats you've had? Ah, uh, some really fun times like on golf courses, whether it's a golf day or you're just out with friends or or, or just by yourself. I mean, golf is that kind of inclusive, very social kind of sport where you know you can go with a few people, but. All of my friends when I was young, that's what that's the sport that we chose as kind of to get together and, and have a wander around, have 18 holes or nine holes and just, you know, just wander around and, and just chat, just shoot the breeze. And, and I think the great thing about golf is because you're doing something at the same time, it doesn't feel like an intense chat. Like it's, you're not staring each other in the face and you're, you, you know, talking. It's, you know, you're doing something in between. So the chats kind of come and go um, and it kind of takes the pressure off. So they're nice chats. So I'm just going to start off with a little kind of simple question and just a little bit of a softball pitch to you. Brexit. What's the solution for Brexit? <laughs> I think the solution to Brexit is, is stay where we are. Stay in Europe. 
I'm kind of pro-Europe, I guess. It's going to be an interesting kind of outcome uh, to Brexit, but I don't think anyone's got the answers. And it'll be really arrogant of me to come up with an answer here and now. But um, yeah, no strong answer on that one. Like everybody else, I think. Let's give us a game-changing answer so we can just uh, we can throw it out there, tag it to the podcast and just have millions of listens. I think profound to say. Well, I think... I th- <laughs> I think we can chop off, chop off Scotland, chop off Wales, and drift and drift into the ocean, England on their own. I think that's probably where we're heading. <laughs> that was a nice. Sorry, sorry for loving that one at you. A bit of a grenade there, Matt. <laughs> yeah, Get political on me. <laughs> so, Matt, I've got to bring it back to your childhood. Okay, so Matt, I've heard through the grapevine that like you almost could have made it for Crystal Palace. You've had some trials, but but for that injury, you'd be a Premiership player. Absolutely, I'm glad you heard that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Football was my second sport. Actually, rugby was my first sport. So playing rugby union, I could have made it for England, but I managed to get out of that. The injury saved everyone, and and I'm here today. <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about the England Ireland game at the weekend, but not. No, 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 we can definitely cover we can definitely cover that. We'll spend some time on that. We don't have much time to talk about that, so we're keen to move on to other topics. <laughs> Far be to say I want to say congratulations. You gave us a bit of an, an aspect. That's very honourable of you, Ron. That's very honourable of you. <laughs> Do you want to talk cricket? Do you want to talk one day cricket, the international World Cup winners, Irish captain. Just want to love that one as well. <laughs> Is he really Irish? He's got a he's, he's got an Irish dog. He's got an Irish dog or he's definitely more English than he is Irish. <laughs> So Matt, um, really excited to have you on our podcast today. Can you just share a bit of background about like last couple of years you live in you live in Sydney? Can you tell us about your family? Uh, we live in a lovely area. Just a bit of context about your life in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, um, kind of ordinary guy, really. Just three kids. We had a fourth child who came across to us kind of later in life, and she's made us four children. And yeah, just an ordinary person living a good life. Beautiful wife, four children, and just enjoying life really so just going about my business kind of got a good flexible job and you know life's good in the eastern suburbs uh, go down to the beach and enjoying the sun and just getting on with life just ordinary life <laughs> and then fast forward to sunday the 24th of march this year can you tell us about that day well that day was a, again it's a, an ordinary day in the life of you know you or i and anyone at kind of, you know, 40-something with, with children. We'd been out for pizza the night before and uh, we were with, with friends and we decided that we we're going to meet on Sunday morning to go down to the park and do some cross-country exercise with the kids. A good friend of ours who were going to go down there with their children, our children, and do some cross-country and some running down at Queen's Park. So it's just all very normal. On Sunday the 24th of March, 9.15 in the morning, Vanessa's in the car. She drops me down to the park with the kids there's excitement, there's sun shining, it's a warm day. And Vanessa goes off to the shops and drops us down to Queen's Park. And then the first interesting thing I think that happened on that day was we were supposed to be meeting up with a good friend of ours, Gronya, and their three children. And I noticed Gronya wasn't there and I saw her husband, Justin, Justin Reed, who's obviously a very key component to this story. And Justin was there this morning, which I was on that morning, I was very happy to see him. I went charging into the park. And I remember him making a comment, coming back to your Crystal Palace days. He said, you've got a great running style, <laughs> as I went charging into the park. Kids behind me, and their three kids were there. So I was happy to see Justin and went up and had a little bit of a chat. It was interesting that morning that Justin was there. Gronje had decided to go to the shops, and Justin had decided to be down there with the kids. And we chatted and went on, and we decided that Justin was going to head back because Harry that morning had decided that he wanted to 
do the beep test after doing some cross-country training. So Justin went back to the house and I decided to take the kids on a run around the park. So we went off for a trot and the usual kind of whingings and whines from the children as, I, as we all went charging off. But it was a good run around the park. And we're about halfway round. And, and I noticed that something might be slightly wrong because there were two lady walkers that were doing speed walking in the park. And they were actually overtaking me as I was running around Queen's Park. And I thought that was slightly unusual. I'm slow as I'm getting into my older age, but I'm not that slow. Anyway, I didn't think too much about it and went running on. By the time we'd arrived back, all the kids had finished. I was pulling up last and Justin had arrived back from getting the apparatus that he needed to do to, to set up the beep test. Well, I haven't done the Have you done the beep test recently, Ronan? Not recently, no, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't done the beep test recently either. And the last time I think I did, I was about 17 years old. And I think I got to level 12 on the beep test. Now, I don't know whether that's good or bad. Pretty good. <laughs> I hope so. But we'd set up the beep test that day and I decided to join the kids. Justin told me that he'd had a previous injury and he couldn't run that day. So he decided to sit on the sidelines. And I said, I'll take one for the adults here, Justin. <laughs> Leave it to me. So we all sat up and went running on. We got to about level four of the beep test and I decided that's probably about enough. And I was feeling kind of whacked on level four. And I bent over and I took a bit of a puff and I started to walk back to the kids. Some of the kids had already finished. They couldn't be bothered. So I walked back to where the kids were sitting. And on my way back to walking to the kids, I suddenly everything went slightly yellow. And at that point, I remember thinking to myself very lucidly that I'm about to collapse here. I'm about to go down and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And at that point, I hit the ground. And that's when it happened. I was suffering a sudden out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and effectively dying or dead at that point. The next part for me is waking up in hospital, probably around about 48 hours later. But I think the rest is for the children. I think they, first of all, they thought, Dad's having a laugh, isn't he? Dad's, Dad's collapsed. He must be having a laugh. He must be joking here. And the kids were sitting there watching me on the ground. And I think Charlie, who's my middle son, is my only son, but the middle child, he looked at me and said that he saw my eyes rolling back in my head. And at that point, he realized that something was seriously wrong. Obviously, what do you know now about the incident? Um, obviously, you woke up 48 hours later, but what happened then? Can you talk us through what you learned subsequently and Justin's involvement and and the scene as it's been described to you. Yeah, it's an interesting. So I'm kind of picking it apart slightly from all different angles because I guess this experience isn't just my experience and it's an experience for Justin, it's an experience for the kids. And we're in Queen's Park, so there's a lot of people around. There's a buzz of local soccer matches. There's people walking their dogs. So there's things happening at that time, all of which is playing around this me lying on the ground having a cardiac arrest. My youngest daughter, Bonnie, she was asking everyone, why is dad asleep? Why is dad suddenly in the middle of the park on a Sunday morning laid down and gone to sleep? Which was quite a funny one because thinking I'll just kind of lay down in the middle of the park and decide to have a nap on a Sunday morning, which would have been very unlike me. 
Um, Seriously, have you, <laughs> have you done it before? Only after a few beers. <laughs> <laughs> Only after a few beers. Charlie's a very in touch sort of child, and he realised, I think, straight away, and he's the one that suffered most from it. And he he realised when the eyes had rolled back, there was something seriously wrong with Dad. And Annabelle, the oldest, my oldest daughter, she had realised that point that something was seriously wrong. Luckily, my hero. Justin was there with his cape on and he realised obviously that something was wrong and he walked over and said, Matt, Matt, are you okay? And at that point he'd realised that I was not breathing. And you've no recollection of this? I have no recollection of this. So at this point I'm on the ground and you have to wait for the book. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about the book. We don't want to give too much away here, but there's definitely a book in the coming. That's right. And at that point Justin's come over and, you know, just out of sheer luck, and this is where I said I'm the lucky, you know, I hadn't mentioned, but I am the luckiest man walking on the planet, or I certainly feel like it. Justin was down at the, the park in Nocronia that day, and Justin is an anaesthetist at St. Vincent's Hospital, and he had had a CPR training course, not that he needed it, but he'd had it two days before, and he immediately started to perform CPR on me. I think at that point, he gave his phone to his son, Rory, who dialed triple zero and called the ambulance talking about going back to the crystal palace training days rory's an excellent footballer and i think to calm himself down at the time whilst calling triple zero he was actually kicking a ball or keeping a ball up whilst he was calling triple zero and that was his way of dealing with that kind of stressful situation anyway the ambulance was called and justin's madly doing cpr on me the kids are crying and then after about five minutes i think the police had turned up And the police come in, understand that Justin's doing CPR and they take the kids away. The kids are crying, they're in hysterics and they take them to a part of Queen's Park, just slightly away from where the incident's happening. And the police were fantastic. They were chatting to the kids, trying to make light of it, telling that dad's going to be okay, all of which waiting for the, the ambulance to arrive. I think at this point, and Justin tells me that there were people strolling past and trying to help at that point you know, trying to wave down or look for the ambulance. But I think there was a guy who was strolling past and there was a few people that gathered around me. One lady was kind of stroking my hand and Justin's there madly working on me. And we're seven minutes into the piece here. I think Justin's been doing CPR for. Now, Justin's a pretty healthy guy and he knows what he's doing. But after seven minutes, he's sweating, he's tense. And this is an emotional thing for him as well, of course. But there's a guy who's just walking along, apparently, in Queen's Park, sees what's going on, strolls over, and then ducks his head in and just says to Justin, you're doing it too hard. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about that kind of kind of post and thinking, if, you know, just as well he knew what he was doing, that he wasn't going to take that in, you know, kind of ruin his confidence. But if he, he was just a you know, person off the street and that happened to him, what would that have done to his confidence? Somebody, you know, just adding in there, you're doing it too hard, you know. So luckily, you know what he was doing, ignored that and carried on. So my understanding, Matt, is that survival rates are so low for this type of incident, but Justin applied the absolute correct amount of pressure. And if he hadn't, he wouldn't have been able to restart your heart. Is that correct? So CPR, you're kind of right. As long as it's done straight away, so either CPR or a defibrillator at the time, if somebody has a sudden cardiac arrest, is the most important thing to do. So 
obviously we don't walk around carrying defibrillators on us. Um, well, I might do now. <laughs> but failing that, CPR is the most important thing to get done straight away. Now, Justin obviously knew what he was doing, so did it at the right pace and the right level all the time. But they do say that CPR, you can't do it too hard. As long as you're giving CPR at the right pace, is good CPR. So you can never hurt somebody, you can only save their life. But on that day, luckily, Justin was there and he, he certainly did save my life. So we'll have to have another conversation at a different time about that feedback loop from that the Walker boy, but not for today. So Matt, so what happened next? Well, as you mentioned, I think the, the survival rates, so, you know, I've done this kind of the post statistics on it, but the survival rate of a, an out of hospital cardiac arrest is depending on where you go in the world. So it depends from country to country, but it's somewhere around sub 10%. So sub 10% of people who go through this out of hospital will survive and obviously 90% will die. So very low odds of surviving. And of those kind of 10%, let's say, who do survive, there is a, a, another percentage who will die subsequently in hospital and there's another percentage who will come out of it with some form of brain damage. Now, that's not a carrot for you to say that <laughs> I haven't... <laughs> But that's it. I mean, it's low, low odds of survival. So yeah, needless to say, I'm, a, I'm an extremely lucky man and I don't take that too lightly. So then the ambulance obviously arrives and so Justin's been performing CPR. He's physically exhausted. Like you say, it's an emotional impact. Do the ambulance crew take over then? So I never knew this, but the ambulance crew arrive and one of the things that the kids said to me was that when they saw the ambulance crew, you expect them to kind of screech to a halt, the guy and the girl jump out and to run over to an event like that. But what they do is they calmly get out, get their equipment and they walk over. The, you know, the significance of that is that the ambulance people don't want to have a, an accident on the way to something like that. So they calmly walk over, thinking about the situation, carrying their equipment and then just arrive on the scene. So it's not this mad rush that you'd expect or I would have thought they just turn up. So the ambulance turns up and they turn up with a defibrillator and give me a shock. And that effectively is done to restart the heart. Technically, do you know how long was your heart not working for? It's probably around about 10 minutes or just over 10 minutes that it wasn't working for. So effectively, I think they call it technically dead for 10 minutes. And then after the defibrillator, there's some electroactivity and the heart starts again. And then you're effectively then off to hospital. And at what point did Vanessa was, was called and she was on her way to the scene? So that was an interesting, that's probably a, a side story in itself. I think Charlie, my son, had, had got the phone and decided that he ought to call Vanessa, mum, and she was up at the shops as you do on a Sunday morning, getting the weekly shop, and she knew straight away as soon as she got the call from Charlie who'd said that, mum, you need to come down to Queen's Park dad's not breathing and obviously she was actually with Gronya, Justin's wife at the time and it's one of those incidents I think where just everyone senses what's happening the you know the gravity of the situation and Vanessa obviously dropped everything and made her way down to Queen's Park she'd arrived at, at the time and the ambulance had already arrived at that time and I think she screeched to a halt and tried to park the car whilst looking at me on the floor and I think she'd not the car about four or five times trying to park it on that day. Can you tell me about the Green Goblin? Are you sure that story? What's yeah, 
Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, this is an area that I go back to, kind of, you know, kind of post the event. And all I can remember is that when I had collapsed, that for some reason I got dragged out of that situation. I moved, and I don't know where I moved to, but it felt like I'd moved to a different zone, a different place, and it felt like I was in, I was kind of asleep at that point. And all I remember is the face of Justin, green all around him. And he looked like a bit like a kind of a goblin outfit that day. And he was on top of me and staring at me. And I was just crying out, Justin, 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 get me out of here. And it felt like it was a very kind of painful place that I was in. But he was in this funny caricature. Yeah, you're exactly right. Justin the goblin. <laughs> Justin the green goblin. Is there any other, in that kind of crossover area, was there... Is there any other recollection? Is there any, like, did you see the light? Like, did you? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm not trying to make light about this. But sorry, that's a terrible pun. Was there anything else that, that you said you fell asleep? Was there anything else that you experienced during that time, those few minutes? There really wasn't. And, you know, the, one of the things that I retrospectively kind of think about is that moment because I think it's this you know, some people go out and they do extreme sports and some people do amazing things to wake themselves up in life. And one of the things that I felt in that moment was that it was, number one, it was a very easy process. So it felt like there was nothing challenging or scary about it. And number two was that it felt like an adrenaline point or that I was in a place where I was being kind of woken up. A very, very strange, difficult to, to kind of put into context or into words, but an odd place that it felt like I'd entered and then subsequently kind of moved out of. So read into that how you will. <laughs> <laughs> that's another episode in itself. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so from what I hear now afterwards, no 45-year-old male goes for a run around Queen's Park or Centennial Park without having just an had. That's right, it, yeah. It, there's a service there, isn't there? Like book, book, a, book a CP or a buddy to yeah, go running with. You have to go out with a doctor. Every time you go out for a run, you have to go out with a doctor if you're 46 years or older. But going back, to, I think, to the to the stats around it, I think in Australia, 20,000 people have kind of cardiac arrests per year. And I think if you go to places like the US or to the UK, those stats get even kind of bigger, where you're talking about almost half a million people are having cardiac arrests or some sort of cardio event per year. So it's, it's a huge, huge thing. And as I said, you know, it's a, it's a huge killer out there. And what surprised me was that after this, I wanted to speak to people about CPR and and talk to people and how many people know how to do it and very few people actually know CPR and 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 I think put in that situation you know luckily I had Justin there who's trained in it but put in that situation would somebody else be able to jump in administer CPR and save a life I think one thing we didn't talk about was after 10 minutes there was a lifeguard from Kuji, a gentleman by the name of Darren who turned up and and he also kind of stepped in and and did some work on me whilst Justin had a rest as well. So Justin can't take all the glory for it. There is, there is somebody else involved as well. He's a regular hero, though, is he? It, absolutely, he is. Yeah. And oh, as you said, you need Justin. He's got a job down there at Queen's Park. He can just hang around down there. We'll pay for him. And it, you know, any, any 40-something man who passes out, he can go over and save them. I know we'll talk about a post-event, but... I know in my own experience, when I met Justin afterwards, I was a blubbering mess. I went up to my son with the traffic lights and I just started crying. <laughs> <laughs> I thanked him for saving your life. 
you know, Mark Frisdorf got a thousand t-shirts made up with it. <laughs> That's <laughs> really my hero. I, I think I was talking about that. Definitely made one but. of those. <laughs> Mate, what I'm reminded of, I'm going to try and prove really profound here. So this is where I go. It reminds me of the final words of Samuel Beckett's novel, The Unnameable. You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. There's an inner strength, Matt, obviously within you. Where did that come from? Hard to say, but I think you look back in your, you know, your experiences and, and your life to try and pick up where you get that inner strength from. And yeah, I'm one of four children and I've got three sisters. Two of my sisters, sadly, have struggled with mental health all their life. One is a, a schizophrenic and, and one is a, suffers with bipolar and depression. And I think kind of understanding that from a very young age makes you believe or see that you've got to remain positive in life. You can't let life get you down or knock you down. There's a lot of things that try and step in the way to give you a different perspective or a negative perspective in life. But you've always got to remain positive. So that's one thing. And I think you look at your family and... You know, your, your wife, your children, your husband, and you get inner strength from them. My lovely wife, Vanessa, and I get great strength from her. She, she lost her parents very young in life. And actually her father died at London Bridge Station when she was about 15 of a massive heart attack. And he didn't survive that heart attack. And then she subsequently lost her, lost her mother at a very young age. And she, for me, is a real inspiration of somebody who's remained positive throughout life hasn't had her parents around. I'm lucky to still have my parents. So I think you draw inspiration from those people around you and they've been significant and important in my life. And they'll continue to give me inspiration. You know, everyone needs that central person where they kind of gauge themselves. And for me, it's Vanessa and, and my kids. I'm lucky enough to, to know Vanessa and Kendra as a friend and absolutely echo that. She is an amazing woman and an um, amazing member of the community. Yep. And I think she gives strength to a lot of people. She certainly does, yeah. So Matt, it's 48 hours later and you wake up in St. Vincent's Hospital. Did you have any awareness about what happened or what was your first thought? Yeah, I woke up and I'm in hospital and I almost knew straight away exactly what happened. Like I knew that there'd been an event and I was pretty sure that it was going to be something to do with my heart. So when I'm woken up, one of the nurses is saying, Matt, Matt, can you hear us? Can you hear us? Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? And at this stage, I've got breathing apparatus and tubes going down my throat, so I can't actually speak. But I remember giving a thumbs up, and I remember at that point kind of thinking, I know something serious has happened, and I know it's something to do with my heart, most likely. And I think at that point, then the nurse says, you've had a cardiac arrest, you're okay, we're just bringing you up, you're at St. Vincent's Hospital. And at that point, I remember catching a, a glimpse of Vanessa, her sister, and her brother standing by the bed. And that was the, at the time at which I kind of realized, okay, I've had a major incident, but I've, I've managed to survive, and now it's what happens next, and, and what implication this will have to, to my life moving forward. And then it's the next kind of, 48 hours and, and the realisation of what's happened and the realisation of what they'll need to do to correct it. And I was obviously at that point very, very happy that, you know, I was alive. 
and it, it wasn't actually a heart attack, was it? It was. What was? Thank, it? thank yeah, good, po- good point. Because I do, yeah. yeah. Uh, as I understand it, and you know, I'm happy to be corrected on this, but it was a, a cardiac arrest which causes the heart to stop. So it's the electrical activity which gets disturbed, and that causes the heart to stop, and that's as a result of coronary artery disease. And that's what I subsequently found out was that all four of the arteries going into the heart had subsequently become plaque infested and were not supplying enough blood to the heart. So it was just lucky on that particular day that we affectionately now call the beep test that I actually did do the beep test because what could have happened was that, you know, I was driving a car or, you know, I was out running with no one else around and that incident could have happened. So coronary artery disease and I found out at that point 24 hours after I'd woken up that I was going to be going into surgery in about almost as soon as possible. So the luckiest man on the luckiest day with the luckiest people around you. You've named it, exactly. Is that the book? Have I just named <laughs> the book? No, I, I named the book The Beep Test. The Beep Test. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's just pure luck. I mean, the coincidences that happened on that day. So, you know, Justin being there, you know, a lifeguard walking past being close to St. Vincent's and St. Vincent's is renowned obviously as being a kind of a heart hospital with great reputation in that area. So everyone told me after I was going to be going into surgery in two days time that you're at the right place. These are like cut and paste now, these these sorts of operations. So at that point, I became very, very comfortable. But I'd been spending time in ICU. So I was in ICU at that stage and came off the breathing apparatus and you know, I was trying to kind of, kind of come to terms with what happened and what was going to happen in the future. And ICU is a strange, strange place. And, you know, you've got to admire people who kind of live and work in that sort of area. I mean, the sights and sounds you see in that place are un- unbelievable. Can you share a few with us? For me, coming from the outside, virtually everyone who goes into ICU is severely un- unwell. So you're just hearing kind of gurglings and screams and shouts all the time just through either pain or disturbance and you don't sleep much because obviously this is just going on 24 hours a day so everyone's on kind of high amounts of medication so it's a really kind of forced environment and very strange different people wandering in prodding and poking you different people asking questions and very odd environment almost you become slightly paranoid yeah so that was a bit of a struggle and I remember after I had woken up after about 24 hours, the cardio team came along to assess me and came up to my bed and no one else is there. And they said, you know, Matthew, you know, good to see you. You know, you've survived and, you know, it's been kind of an extraordinary survival. So, you know, congratulations. But we just need to test everything else is working well upstairs. And the first thing they asked me was, can you count back from 100 in sevens for me, please? (laughs) And I remember thinking... I couldn't do that beforehand <laughs> or with a calculator. How the hell am I going to be able to do that now? But I struggled through it. I don't think I got very close, but I think the, just the idea of being able to try and do it was enough for them. <laughs> so that's kind of a, you know, the way that they kind of go around and test you, that you're kind of mentally, mentally okay at that particular time. And then it's about selecting, you know, coming around and felt like it was the doctor selecting me for the operation rather than me selecting the doctor various surgeons are walking past and you're getting a feel that they're talking about your case 
And then a surgeon comes up and says, that, you know, I'm going to be the one doing the operation. Are you okay with that? Sign here. And you're away, you're locked in. So all this is happening within a very short period of time. So, you know, kind of stressful, odd environment, and you're just going with it. Is there any sense that you're observing yourself from the outside? Are you kind of looking at yourself going, this is unreal? How am I here? Was there an external view or was it just bizarre? I think it was just bizarre. I didn't really think about, I wasn't, I was just in the moment. I think that was the, the key point. I was just thinking about the here and now. I was worrying about work, you know, because I think those things that you were almost your old life, not your old life, but things that were, you know, everything that's happened, you're still thinking about, you know, the old Matt, you know, this is this is what's important to me. And, you know, I kept on saying, trying to talk to Vanessa saying, I've got to let work know and I've got an appointment with somebody tomorrow and you've got to let them know I'm not going to make it. And it was really stressing me out to try and get these things that were, happening in the diary and happening on that day sorted out but ultimately that's not important ultimately that doesn't matter but for me at that moment it was it was stressful and I had to get it across to make me relaxed it was almost as if I wanted to go back to normal life Uh, did you have any other random thoughts like I forgot to return the lawnmower to my neighbor was there anything bizarre like any, any other random thoughts like that I think everything was a ra- uh, everything was a random thought. Have I paid the uh, Have I paid the gas bill? Has the mortgage gone? <laughs> yeah. you know, all these sorts of things are c- kind of crossing crossing your mind. But after a while, I think having chat to Vanessa, talked to the doctors, I suddenly realised, you know what? I just can't worry about this. I've just got to worry about what's ahead. And then for me, it became a kind of a voyeurism sort of scenario, watching the workings of the hospital and workings of ICU and seeing people strolling past and. Justin was into visit and you know that all became kind of interesting at that point and it was working towards gearing myself up for an operation of which I'd never had an operation of this um you know this type of operation in the past obviously but even going to the dentist for me is a stressful a stressful <laughs> thing and you mentioned you know thinking about the old Matt versus the new Matt and you're thinking about as you're lying there what lay ahead did you have any different perspective of life? And as you mentioned there a few minutes ago, you know, what was important, but was there a new perspective of life at that point in time or did that come a bit later? No, I think that came a bit later. I think at that time, I was just realizing how lucky I was and everyone was telling me, you're extremely lucky. So I think in hospitals, they talk about outcomes of treatments and the doctors kept on telling me, this is a really good outcome. First of all, to survive. Second of all, your heart hasn't been impacted. So you still got a strong heart and with no brain damage there. This is pretty much as good as it gets. I think one thing that happened quite quickly, though, was, and I, I don't know if you've seen the movie as, as good as it gets, but it's a, a really good movie with Jack Nicholson. And he's, yeah, he's got an OCD about him and he's kind of later in life and he's worrying about tiny things in life, about can't step on cracks in the pavement or he's got to order exactly the same meal at the restaurant. It has to be exactly the same way. And I think you get caught up in those details in life and I think one thing I realized straight away was you know don't stress the detail don't worry about it it's going to be okay if you can come through this everything's going to be okay you can pretty much survive anything you've just got to ignore them they're never going to beat you down and and, and I think you get so caught up with that in life those tiny incidents the routine the automatron kind of ideal where you're just going around in life you know and I felt to myself that if something really negative like this can happen to me, 
And it can never be you, right? So I was never thinking anything like this could ever happen to me. If something negative like this can happen or something tragic like this can happen, on the flip side, something really positive can happen as well. So I kind of came out with, out of it with this kind of sense that, well, it was never going to be me and negative happens. So something positive can happen as, a, as an outcome of this as well. So that's where I'm at kind of now is kind of thinking positively about how this is going to kind of affect me in, in life as I move to my later 40s and early 50s. Are you okay to kick that one around for a few minutes? <laughs> yeah, we have to. <laughs> <laughs> so you said the doctor said you've got a really good outcome. You said you described yourself as the luckiest man. How do you use that experience going forward, man? How do you take what you've learned? Because you've got a great story and a great message to share. It's a gift. How do you give that gift back to the world? Yeah, no pressure. That's what I think it is. It's if I sit down there and think about it and the fact that I've been given a second chance, it would be remiss of me to treat that with anything but respect and the fact that I have been given that second chance and a lot of people don't get it it means that I've got to make something of it and I think that there comes the pressure is how do you make something of it and take that forward and and do something but I've had a great life beforehand so I think it's just realizing that life is great life is good don't stress the small things always think positively and just enjoy the people around you you know, what did come out of this is an amazing family, a really strong community. And those were the things that ultimately that was important to me at the time and is important to me moving forward is, you know, the people you surround yourself with. Yeah. And that's been one of the amazing outcomes of this as well. And you said the para community, we're very lucky to have a great community around the school where our kids go to. I'm going to suggest you probably didn't know how much you were loved or appreciated before this happened. Did you get any new sense of that? And it's yourself, it's your family, Vanessa, it's everyone that's held in such esteem. What did you kind of realise about community that you didn't know before? I felt it was astonishing. That's I was quite astonished. And, and you, and you realise that, you know, me and Vanessa, like everyone else, is always talking about, you know, should we do something different? So should we go somewhere else? Should we move back to the UK? Shall we go to Asia or, or try something different? And I think that's a really positive thing to do, just to try different cultures and what came out of this was, wow, this community around us is is phenomenal. Everyone cares. And I think that's been a, a great thing is that every day I'm walking around up to drop school kids off and you bump into people and the first thing they say is, how are you? And just being able to talk, you know, just somebody asking, how are you? Being able to talk about it has been, you know, a healing process, I guess, and, and a healing process without having to go and pay for it through a, through a, through a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just somebody, just people are asking and care about you and are asking how are you has been a, a really positive healing process. Just like genuinely caring. Yeah, well, you hope so. Unless, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's genuine care, exactly. So as we said a few minutes ago, Matt, we get caught up in the day-to-day -day activities and the humdrum of life, and we probably can't see that sense of community but to experience it is is amazing, I'm sure. Yeah, and it, it certainly is. And, you know, it, it was phenomenal. And I think everyone looked at it and thought, wow, it's a rallying of, of people to come out and show their support. And ultimately, that's very, very touching. And it's been a great thing kind of mentally for me to heal and just a, a, a great thing to witness. You know, there's a, I'm, I'm not really a great kind of social media person, but I think, you know, you're talking about outcomes and, you know, how do you move forward from this? And there's a thing on that I keep on seeing on LinkedIn, which is about an American general. 
and he's talking at this graduation ceremony. And he says the one good thing to look at throughout your life is you, nobody has to be doing great things all the time, but small things count. And he, he always talks about making your bed every morning and says that you've got to, you've probably seen it a few times. If you haven't, it's worth a listen to. But he says about how important it is making your bed in the morning because even if you go out during the day and you don't achieve anything else in that day, you can still come back to your house at night and before you go to bed, you realise that you've achieved making your bed. And I think that's something that I think about now more than anything is achieving something every day or taking something out of every day to, to make sure that there's a positive in every day and it doesn't have to be big or life-changing things. It can just be things that I'm proud of and, and that's something that I've come out of this event with. Something to, small things. Small things and compounding impact. Exactly. So Matt, you talked a few minutes ago around, you know, there was probably a sense of responsibility or you've given, given a second chance. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? I'd try everything. I think I'd just want to throw yourself into everything. And I've always had this kind of idea about being kind of, you know, slightly creative. I think I'd learn to play the guitar. I did try and play the guitar prior to the beep test. So maybe playing the guitar and and recording a song that might be that might be one that I can as, as a takeaway <laughs> would, would it be a free copy with your book <laughs> that's, that's exactly right you can have a you can have a single and a book all in one and, and using this experience I think speaking to you in the last couple of months you're really passionate about the education perspective and I feel like you could use this experience and then we talked about the other day we're in our mid-40s, we're full of fear, the things that hold us back, and we always think of things that reasons not to do things. So if, if fear didn't hold you back, how would you use this? I mean, it's a good question, and rethinking about it again, my immediate thoughts kind of when I was first getting back to kind of like full health was about promoting CPR, about promoting CPR as everyone should have some knowledge of CPR, and also about kind of automated external defibrillators. So ensuring there's one around all the time. So there was this kind of passion about that I got saved and that everyone else has the opportunity to save because the survival rates are so low that if you promoted CPR in the community, that would have a positive outcome, that I could save somebody else's life by putting that message out there. The secondary thing is putting the story down and seeing how, you know, albeit a story that, other people have shared and other people have gone through throughout the world many, many times. That's maybe a story that resonates with people and has an impact. If only one person goes and gets their heart checked or goes for a stress test or an echo and finds out that they've got cardiovascular disease, that would be a good outcome for something, a message that I can share. One little thing every day. If you could have one impact, one impact a day. That would be it. It would be about having, you know, putting the word out there, one impact a day. And if you could change somebody's life or just reach somebody every day, then that would be a great thing. So, Matt, we're down the local bowling club in 12 months' time, and we're having a conversation, and we're celebrating all the cool things you've done over the last year. What have you done? I think number one would be the book's about to be published. It's been written. It's about to be published. I think that would be the first thing I'd like to have done in a year's time. And... Then looking on to the Hollywood movie of the of the beep test, <laughs> who who plays you? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, 
I was having this chat with a mate of mine when we were having a bit of a joke about who'd play me in, in, in the life story. And I had an idea about Tom Cruise playing me. And my mate said to me, he goes, Matt, uh, sorry to kind of ruin your ideas there, but I think Tom Cruise would want to play Justin, <laughs> being the hero and all. He said, have you thought about Rowan Atkinson? <laughs> so maybe Rowan Atkinson, and I'd settle for that, I think. If I can get a, a, a book out of this, then yeah, that would be a great thing. And and not anything to say this is such a an amazing story that no one else has been through, but just to get the word out there about you can survive it, you can come through, and you can make a positive input. And does the community have permission to support you to get that book written? Absolutely, 100%. I couldn't do it without them. <laughs> I look forward to that. Uh, Matt, so this is going to be a bit more, but now I'm going to bring it through forward to your deathbed, okay? I've, I've, I've already been there once, so <laughs> I'm going there again. Um, you're watching your life's highlights reel. Mm -hmm. What's on that reel? For me, it's, again, it's about people and it's about family. I'd look at my wife, Vanessa. I look at my children, how they've grown up, and I'd be happy for that. And I'd see that as a, a huge success. I'd see this event as key to another start in life, a, a big shot in the arm. But one thing it has made me realize is that people are just so important in this life. And, you know, if you look back about achievements, you know, it is about you relate everything back to people that you're engaging with or family so so for me it's very much about my family and how they've impacted me and how I've impacted them thanks for sharing that's, that's pretty amazing Matt and another more of a conversation question here so at your funeral what song are they playing the people <laughs> go oh that's Matt what song meatloaf bad out of hell <laughs> Why bad out of hell? When you watch Meatloaf live, he gives everything into that song. And I think there was there was kind of videos of Meatloaf being kind of literally when he's at the end of a concert, he's he's gotta be lifted off the set. He's got to be lifted off stage because he's put so much into it and he's put so much energy into it. And I think that's what I like about that song is it's just got gusto, it's got go and he gives everything to that song and I think that's how you know you want to live your life right is you want to give everything to it and at the end when you draw that last <laughs> breath is you want to know that you've given it everything so that's why I'd have that out of hell brilliant I've actually heard that when Meatloaf goes on tour he brings three size pants with him <laughs> like a 40 like a 38 and a 36 so he starts I'd have gone 40 42 <laughs> and 44 <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I've been lucky enough to see Meatloaf live. He is actually Have brilliant. Really, yeah. I, can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. One last question, Matt. Is there any question I should have asked you today? I think a question about, not so much about the event or the work up to it, but maybe a kind of a post-event question and, and re more reflective as to what's happened since this has happened to me, um, which has been quite significant. There's been a significant change in my outlook and and certainly in my life as well, and, and the people that have affected my life that um, has now, you know, affected a change. 
And one of the things that's happened subsequently is um, I'd never met Darren the lifeguard before. I, I didn't even know what he looks like, and he was a massive contributor to saving my life. Um, and just a day after I'd done some a, a TV show, um, I was walking to the coffee shop I just go into every every day after um, before work. I just strolled in there, and there was a guy staring at me, um, really, really staring at me, and I thought I'd done something to, to offend him. And he just came up to me and said, are you Matt Beckett? I said, yeah. And he said, I'm Darren the lifeguard. And we sat down, had about an hour chat and about the event and what's happened since. And it was a very emotional kind of meeting. So one of the things that he was telling me is that it was a day like another because he usually goes out for a swim every, every Sunday morning. But on this morning, he decided to go out for a run with his, his wife, his partner. And they were running a bit late, which is unusual because they're usually routine. He went running into Centennial Park and he felt a bit kind of out of breath, so he decided not to run back. And they took a leisurely walk back and grabbed a coffee. We were going to grab a coffee and decided to grab a coffee and the coffee was running late, but he wanted to jack it in and just get back home. But she said, no, no, you should wait, you should get your coffee. So all these delays, they were strolling through Queen's Park and he he said to me, he looked over and he saw people doing CPR. And he thought, oh, they're practicing CPR over there. And as he got closer, he realized it was for real. And that was me and, and Justin was doing CPR on me. He strolled over and, and helped out and stepped in um, to, do, to you know, do the CPR. And he was doing it for about 20, 25 minutes. And his wife was standing there. And Justin was making sure the airwaves were correct. And then, obviously, the ambulance arrives, and he's doing CPR when the ambulance arrives, and they defibrillate. And he said it was the strangest thing, because he said, this normal morning, you know, full of unusual events, and then suddenly he's doing CPR on a guy, and then suddenly I was taken away in an ambulance, and he never heard anything else. And he said that was a, such an extreme thing to happen that morning, that he'd gone through this event, and there was adrenaline pump pumping through his veins. And he said he didn't sleep for, like, three days, because there was so much going on. But it was, you know, suddenly gone to the hospital and then he has to carry on with his day as normal. Um, and he said that was really, really strange for him because it was like, you know, you're strolling around, you save someone's life and then you've got to go back and, you know, cook Sunday lunch and go back to work the next day. And he said it was a, a really difficult thing, thing for him to, to deal with. But the other thing that he mentioned that I didn't know was that it was CPR is a very aggressive process because usually when you're practicing it, you're doing it on a dummy. For him, he said that the body's fitting at the same time that you're doing CPR, plus you've got all the kind of like the bodily fluids that are flowing out, tongues are hanging out. So he said it's actually a very aggressive process, which I thought was interesting that probably you don't hear during the CPR training is that, you know, when somebody's actually going through this process, it can be very, very aggressive. And he was kneeling on me to try and keep me held down at the same time as doing CPR. And... I was expecting I was just lying there kind of perfectly subdued and there's a very good, I was a very good person to, <laughs> to do CPR on, but apparently it's something kind of just very unlike anything else he's experienced. So it was great to see Darren on that day and um, and he's a person I'm going to stay friendly with and uh, we'll touch base from time to time. So one of the things that's come out of the event is, you know, we've made new friends. And um, you said it was quite an emotional meeting. Can you share a bit more about that, Matt? Well, I think it was more emotional for him because of the, you know, he said it was a very, one of the things he mentioned to me was a very human experience. And he said that touching 
you know, doing CPR on someone, touching somebody who's got kids that are floating around, somebody's body who's warm, it feels like a very, he felt like a very strong connection and a, a, it felt like a very emotional thing for him. You know, I'm conscious I don't want to speak for him, but, you know, that's what he'd, he'd said to me. So, and I think that's something he's carried with him. And I think if you save someone's life, and that's an amazing thing to do, right? So, you know, he saved another man's life. So I think for him that's gives us a connection and, and certainly it does for me. You know, I'm just a, you know, I was a bystander in the whole thing effectively anyway. As you said earlier on in the podcast, we all have one impact a day and that was his impact on that day. But as you said, lots of different circumstances that were very different on that day. Amazing, yeah. I mean, what a thing to do, which is, you know, why he had to carry on with his life after that. And he found it, you know, it was difficult three days after he was still not sleeping. So, yeah, amazing. What a, what a thing to do. Matt, one theme that's come up in our conversation has been about all the different circumstances on that day. It was supposed to be growing and then it was Justin and then this guy was going to go swimming and then and he went running and, and then he wasn't feeling well. So he stopped and then the coffee was like, there's so many kind of sliding door moments in this conversation. Yeah. Have you been able to think about that or any make any sense around that? Or has that been something that's been top of mind for you? It's definitely on my mind and it's definitely something that I'm thinking about that. Yeah, how do all these coincidences kind of form to, you know, saving my life? It, it's an amazing thing and just yeah, just pure luck and something that's just amazing. You can't make sense of it. That's that's the problem. However much you think about it, there's no sense or logic to it. It's just a, you know, yeah, an unusual and very lucky event. Um, yeah, with a great outcome. Have there been any other reflections, Matt? I think one of the things that I keep on going back to, and I have virtually every day since, and I think I will do for a long, long time, is is the the collapse moment, the, the when I collapsed and what happened for the time until I I woke up again. Um, and and that's something I'm probably reflecting on a lot is the death moment, I guess. Um, and the feelings, because it's very hard to articulate exactly what happened there. But the one thing that I think about is that there was a kind of these very, very strong emotions and feelings that were going through my body at the time. And I don't know. So one of them was that I felt like on that day, I, I left the park on that day. So when I collapsed, I, I left. I, I don't know where I went, but I, but physically I felt like I left the park. And... The emotions after that went from like being scared for a very short moment, but then this tranquility and this real sense of calm, almost to a position where I've been thinking about it since and thinking, I would love that feeling again. I would love to have that feeling again. And it felt very easy, very natural process to go through and something that I, I want to experience again, but just not too soon that's really interesting it, you you want to experience that it's just the tranquility was it yeah for me it felt and i'm also kind of conscious this is a very personal thing so my experience is very probably very different to millions and millions of others but for me it felt like a very tranquil experience um something very easy something very natural something that i would not be scared of doing again and something almost addictive, something that you want to 
go and explore a little bit more is the feeling that I've taken away kind of post-event from that sh very short kind of collapse and, and I guess, death experience. That's, that's amazing. I'm actually lost for words around that, Matt. That feeling, is it just a, of... <clears throat> is it is it a feeling Matt of that this is how life should be like this is how life should be every day like tranquil or peace or ease I think for me it was I think what I've taken I've tried to make sense of it is thinking that when my day does come I think I won't be as scared as i and I won't be scared through life as much as I w was prior to this event happening, is that I'm not scared about the end because um, I feel that, not that there's anything on the other side necessarily, I, that wasn't it for me, but the f strong feelings that I have, strong feelings that I had, and the emotions and the, and the senses that went through me during that period made me feel like there was another journey. What that journey is, who knows, but there was another journey and that journey wasn't scary, but it was exciting enough for me to think, I want to go back for more. And do you think that experience, Matt, will give people who have lost other people comfort that they've, we've, we've all lost significant people in our lives and that, that feeling that your experience will help people know that other people have left this world, we're probably at peace. Yeah, and in tranquil in tranquil space. I really hope so, and um, yeah, for me that's been a, a kind of a, a great takeaway. And if it can give anybody else comfort that those were the feelings that I had for a, what is a brief period of time, um, or at least felt like a brief period of time, um, yeah, would be great. But I certainly have come out of it thinking not scared, um, almost not looking forward to it. I would never want that to happen too soon. But yeah, just. Not as scared as I was. Uh, that is absolutely brilliant. Mate, <laughs> I have to say, I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. It's um, been great. Thank I, you. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that has been a healing for yourself. But I think if you will share an amazing story with people and you'll, you'll continue to have impact for the rest of your life. And I just wish you the very best of luck. And I can't wait to have that, uh, that beer toasting your book in 12 months' time at the Bowling Club. Thanks, Ronan. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Well, what a story. The things that really struck me in talking to Matt were his description of this as an awakening, another start in life, a shot in the arm. It's as if life can never be the same again. Matt also spoke about staying positive, even in the face of life's inevitable peaks and troughs. We talked about the power of community and the people you surround yourself with. You can draw inspiration from these and they can also help you to believe in yourself and build confidence. Matt also said that he needs his community to help him create the impact he wants to make. A word that came up over and over was lucky. Matt said he was the luckiest man on the planet, or he certainly feels like it. I described it as the luckiest man on the luckiest day with the luckiest people around him. We really are lucky. In life's busyness or the continuous sense of never quite feeling that we have enough, 
do we really recognise how lucky we are and how grateful we should be? To build on that, are we really making the most of life's opportunities? From a crowd perspective, it was great to talk to Matt about the concepts of small things counting and taking something out of each day to make sure there's a positive in every day. And also, what if you could have one impact a day? My own action, I'm going to learn how to do CPR.